Right, we're carrying on our series in Acts, and we're turning to Acts 15, quite a long reading to read, and then we'll get into some of the substance of it. Acts chapter 15, my uh, title for this week is Handling Disagreements Well. Next week, uh, David's going to speak on Handling Disagreements Badly. (laughs) (laughs) so starting at verse one some men came down from judea and began teaching the brethren unless you're circumcised according to the customs of moses you cannot be saved and when paul and barnabas had great dissension and debate with them the brethren determined that paul and barnabas and some others of them should go up to jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue therefore being sent on their way by the church They were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and were bringing great joy to all the brethren. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying, it's necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders came together and to look into this matter, and there had been much debate. Um, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we are saved through grace of our Lord Jesus Christ in the same way as they are also. All the people kept silent and they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they stopped speaking, James answered saying, Brethren, listen to me. Simeon, that is Peter, has related how God first concerned himself uh, about taking uh, from among the Gentiles a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it's written, after these things I will return and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from a long ago. Therefore, it's my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from the, from the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they abstain from the things contaminated by idols, from fornication, from what is strangled, from blood, uh, strangled and from blood. For Moses, from ancient generations, has in every city those who preach him, since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, Judas called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. And they sent this letter by them. The apostles and the brethren who are elders to the brethren in Antioch and in Syria and Cilicia, who are from the Gentiles, greetings. Since we have heard that some of our number to whom we gave no instruction have disturbed you with their words unsettling your souls, it seemed good to us, having become of one mind to select men to send them to you with beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Therefore, we've sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials, that you abstain from the things sacrificed to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from fornication. If you keep yourselves free from such things, you'll do well. Farewell. So then they were sent away. They went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas also, being prophets uh, themselves, encouraged and strengthened the brethren with a lengthy message. After they had spent time there, they were sent away from the brethren in peace to those who had sent them out. But it seemed good to Silas to remain there. But Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch, teaching and preaching with many others also the word of the Lord. So we have this situation in Antioch where the church is thriving, but suddenly these people come amongst them trying to say that, that the, uh, the believers there can't be real, true believers unless they also get circumcised and start obeying the law. And so this di- dispute breaks out. And so Paul and Barnabas are arguing with them. And in the end, they decide to go up to Jerusalem to, to discuss it. And Paul and Barnabas go with them. And then you have this big debate. And then... Finally, James comes and makes the decision on behalf of the church and sends everyone back. And so they have this dispute, and it contains the second critical moment where the internal disputes could have split that early church. The first issue was with the widows in Acts chapter 6, where the outcome was to appoint deacons to look after the practical issues, including the distribution of food amongst the community. But the issue at dispute here is a theological one. Think about it. Had the discussions gone a different way? The gospel that offered freedom to Jew and to Gentile alike would have been hijacked to become a subset of Judaism. Praise God that he helped those early believers find a way through this dispute. Otherwise, you and I might not be here today. So at the beginning of the narrative, it just happens where Paul and Barnabas have returned to Antioch having had their first missionary journey. And Paul and Barnabas tell the Antioch community of their success. And the joy of this good news is caused, um, that, that this good news caused, was soon chilled by the arrival of these members of the Judean church. And they come down without authorization, demanding that all Jews and Gentiles alike be circumcised and made to obey the law. Essentially, they were requiring them to come under the law of Moses and thereby diminishing the covenant of grace established through Jesus. And that's what Peter picks up on, that the Gentiles are coming through grace, not through the law. The real issue was that these people had not properly understood the implications of the cross. They thought that although Jesus had died for sins, you still had to become a Jew to come into covenant with God. Antioch, of course, was where Paul and Barnabas were based. And that's perhaps the reason why it was first challenged here. This position was something wholly new and upset the community, which had hitherto enjoyed cordial relations with the mother church in Jerusalem. But I just want to say this morning, thank God for Paul. When he'd been saved, he'd gone out into the wilderness. He'd been taught by the Holy Spirit the full implications of salvation. And as we learned in Acts 8, 
And that is what comes through in his letters. And therefore, having thought it all through, Paul was able to debate and challenge what these men were saying. And so Paul and Barnabas lead this delegation to Jerusalem to discuss the question. Peter and James upheld the liberty of the Gentiles, describing only some articles of peace, as they described them, whereby the Gentiles might avoid offending traditional standards of the Jewish brothers and sisters. We know from Galatians 2, 11 to 14, that Peter later, after this, came to Antioch. And in the spirit of the decree, made nothing of eating with uncircumcised and mosaically unclean men. But then another Judaizing group came down from Jerusalem later on, and Peter began to withdraw and eat separately with them. And soon the Jewish Christians, including even Barnabas, were led into the same uh, situation. And it wasn't just a question of teaching, but of example and practice. But Paul sensed the danger and withstood Peter face to face. Of course, this situation continued to rumble on in the church for the years to come. It was a potentially divisive one. It was a limiting one. It was one that would destroy their freedom. I want to pick up on a couple of things that come out in this passage. Firstly, in verses 1 to 6, we see it's the sect of the Pharisees. Here and in Galatians 2, it's clear that the contention that was happening was caused by Pharisees who, like Paul, had come to faith, come to accept Jesus as the Messiah. And throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus having problems with Pharisees. And in this passage, we see that they are still a thorn in the side of Jesus' followers, even though that they are believers themselves. The issue is that in coming to faith, they'd not left their old belief systems behind. In Galatians 2.4, Paul calls them false brethren, secretly brought in, who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. And Paul is still angry about this issue when he writes the letter to the Galatians. So much so that he wishes these false brethren would go halt the whole way and emasculate themselves. Kind words from Paul. Paul's concern is that nothing would hinder the gospel. Nothing would be a barrier for all the people, all people to come to faith in Jesus Christ. And as I've said previously, it not, it's not those becoming Christians, um, not that those becoming Christians also had to become Jews. But the whole concept of what it was to be a Jew and part of the people of God was reconstituted in Jesus Christ. And when we come to faith, when you and I come to faith, we must leave our old belief systems and values behind. That's the meaning of the word repentance, metanoia. It means to change your mind. You don't stay bathed in the values and the belief systems and the way of behaving that we used to do. Everything changes at the cross. Everything is made new. You can't continue to be the person you were before and say you're a Christian. Everything's got to change. Your values, your beliefs, your attitudes, your behaviors. Everything is new. That's what repentance means. These Pharisees hadn't grasped that. They were still trying to hold on to their old way of thinking and then impose it on other people. But we, when we come to faith, we become something new. We become recreated in Christ Jesus. We become those who are being made into his image day by day. We can't keep the old stuff with us. We 
When we come into the kingdom, our values need to be formed and shaped by the word of God. Not by 18th century philosophers of the Enlightenment. Not by postmodern thinkers. By the word of God. And this will put us on a collision course with the society around us as we espouse values that include fundamental tenets of the kingdom. And those fundamental tenets are these. Love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. See, from the time we're born, our brains are washed by the culture around us. But when we come to faith, we have a choice about who we want to wash our brains. And there's only one person I want to wash my brains, and that's God through his word. Coming back to the text, these Pharisees had not yet come to a full revelation of the gospel, and they were adding to it. Perhaps they didn't want to leave the law behind, or they had no understanding um, that they had to leave the law behind. Perhaps, as Paul suggests in Galatians 5, they'd infiltrated the church in order to bring it back under bondage. Either way, this false teaching needed to be dealt with. As an aside, in this passage, we also see the the change in structure that was arising in the early church. Verse 4 tells us that the council was made up of apostles and elders. And the difference between the two is that elders govern the local church, but apostles travel translocally having a ministry, founding churches and laying foundations. And we also see in verse 14, the elevation of James, the brother of the Lord, to the leadership of the church. And even though he's not an apostle, it's his authority that carries that day. So the beginning, there was the beginnings of the shape of the New Testament churches that would become that structure um, to which we still seek to be the structure in which we found shape ourselves. The other thing I want to pick up on from the passage is verse 15 to 18, David's fallen tabernacle. These verses quote from the Greek scripture translation of Amos 9, 11 to 12. But they refer back to the tent that David erected to house the Ark of the Covenant when he brought it back into Jerusalem. You remember the story? First time he brought it up on the cart and Uzzah put his hand out and, and was history at that moment. And so they put it in the house of of Obed-Edom and then they got it right because they went back to what the law said and they got the the priests carrying it properly in poles and they brought it all the way up to Jerusalem with great singing and dancing and and David leaping and whirling, the the Hebrew says, just in his loincloth. And, And so they brought up the tabernacle up to Jerusalem and then David built a tent for it. He didn't just take the tabernacle and bring it in because the tabernacle was over somewhere else. I've got it in my notes somewhere. Uh, Gibeon. It was at Gibeon at this point. David built an open tent. And the whole chain, the worship of, 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 of God changed at that moment. David instituted something new. He brought the, ta- the Ark of the Covenant into that fallen tent or that tent that he had built um, in Jerusalem. And then they made sacrifice. But then they also appointed singers and worshippers. And before the tabernacle, with the tabernacle, there hadn't been singers and worshippers there. But suddenly worship changes. And it becomes an, ex- um, an outward flow of worship and praise being poured out to God. And it's a place where all can come. 
It's not that it's the covenant, the, the, the ark isn't hidden away in an inner sanctum. It's there for all to see and they dance in front of the ark and they worship in front of the ark. Worship changes at this point. David inaugurated a whole new form of worship. Yes, it still includes the burnt offerings which speak of worship and fellowship before God, but it now includes singing, dancing, shouting, psalm singing, trumpet blasting, crimble, crimble, cymbal crashing, and every other form of exuberant praise and worship. And James, the brother of the Lord, picks this up in Acts 15 and says, that's the model of worship that is to be in the New Testament church. We're not here to replicate the mosaic form of of sacrifice and worship, but to take part in a celebration of all that God has done for us. There's no longer a veil between us and the presence of God. It was torn in two when Jesus died on the cross. The way is made open for us to come into the presence of God, not on the basis of a sin offering that we have to repeat each time we come, but on the basis of the fact that the way is made open through Jesus, who is our eternal sin offering. The sacrifice has been made. The way is open to come and worship in the presence of the Lord. And what James emphasizes here is that this way has not just been made open to the Jews, but to people of every nation. Just as the worship of God in David's temple, temple was tent was open to all and not just restricted to the priests any longer. And to this end, he declares that this is the way, this way is no longer dependent on fulfilling the Mosaic law and the requirements associated with the tabernacle, but is instead established on the basis of David's fallen tent. We have a privilege, dear folks. We don't have to come offering sacrifices every week as a form of worship. That sacrifice has been made. Every week we celebrate the fact that that sacrifice has been made. But we come to an open tent into the presence of God. And we have the opportunity, the privilege, the chance to worship him. So what are the recommendations that came out of this, of James's declaration? It's decided that the Gentiles should be advised to abstain from things offered to idols, to abstain from eating meat that was not drained of its blood, to abstain from eating meat of an animal that had been strangled and once again because it would not have been drained of its blood, and to abstain from sexual immorality. Why are those four things chosen? Well, it's because in Leviticus 17 and 18, these things were requirements of all who lived in Israel, whether they were Jews or not. If you were a Gentile living in, in Israel in the, in the Old Times, in, in the Old Testament times, you weren't required to obey the law, but you were required to do these four things, to live within the boundary and live as part of the community. And so James says, just the same way, let's be the same, let's be consistent. In other words, don't eat, and, and the, the instruction there is, is, a, is all about not eating the blood in the animals and about sexual immorality. In other words, James is simply extending the general Levitical code for aliens to Gentile believers with the instruction, if you keep these things, uh, keep yourselves from these things, you will do well. So it's a general instruction rather than a thou shalt. In other words, in declaring that David's tabernacle is open to all, James, by saying this, is welcoming Gentiles not within the borders of physical Israel, but in the borders of the new covenant people of God. 
And we're now part of that people. Not through obeying the Mosaic law, but by the grace of God extended through the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're not yoked to the law, a burden too difficult for even Israel to bear, as Peter says. But we're yoked to Christ, whose yoke is easy and whose burden is light. And in order to, to, to affirm this, James wrote a letter to be circulated amongst all the churches so that everyone would be clear concerning this teaching. Despite this fact, we know that the Galatians continued to have this issue because people kept coming and trying to enforce uh, the restrictions of the law upon them. However, eventually, this false teaching was, was killed off. Following the conclusion of the council, a whole group, including Barnabas, Paul, Silas, and probably John Mark, returned from Jerusalem to Antioch. And it seems that Peter also joined them at some stage, as, as you, if you read on in Galatians 2, you will see. And despite the decree of the council, some of the Jewish believers were still struggling, particularly with, the, with trying to please those Jewish believers who took a harder line on these things. I just wonder, could this be the first sign of cracking which led to the relationship of Paul and Barnabas breaking up? We'll return to that next week. But one of the key learning points out of this whole passage is how to handle disagreement without separating from one another. The two sides in this dispute believe vehemently their understanding of the truth. We're told in verse 2, that this brought about a sharp dispute and debate. I'm sure if you were arguing with Paul, it would not have been a quiet and peaceable experience. I wouldn't like to take on Paul, I have to say. The important thing, however, is that they were willing to debate. They didn't assume an unmovable position and then take their bat and ball home. They were willing to talk about the issue, but to stay in unity with one another. And I believe the church in our day, as well as individuals within the church, could learn from this. We're far too quick to separate ourselves off from one another, to fracture the body of Christ over secondary issues. And the fracturing of the church is one of the blights of the modern church. Somehow we've lost sight of Jesus' prayer in John 17, that we may be one as the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are one. And that's not to say that our disagreements are not important. But we do a gospel a disservice when we allow them to separate us one from another. In my work in churches together in England, I occupy the same ecumenical space as many whom I profoundly disagree with. If our unity was based on our lining up everything each other believes, it would be impossible. But our unity is based on something deeper, the unity of the spirit. It's the fact that I can see something of Jesus in them and they can see something of Jesus in me. And for that reason, we're committed to the common cause of making Jesus known. And that doesn't mean we don't have dialogue, but it also means that our purpose together is greater than our individual disagreements. Perhaps I'm feeling this more intensely at this moment because of recent events. In the next passage... We will see how to handle disagreements badly. However, even in that, Paul later resolved his issues with John Mark. As we conclude, it's important that we uphold the truth of the gospel. 
but it's also important that we stay in unity with one another. That we take the wonderful privilege that we have of the freedom of the gospel and make it known. That we come before the throne of God and worship him with all that we are, just as happened at David's fallen tent. And may God give us a heart of love towards our brothers and sisters, especially this week as we participate in the Festival of Light together in Beverly. And may he increase our love for him. Love God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. Amen.